Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that this morning he would reveal to us the power of your word and the importance of believing on your son, Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a um, circumstance in life that from that point on, things will never be the same? Uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Maybe it was the birth of your firstborn child. Maybe at that point, everything changed. Maybe it was your first day at school. Maybe it was the day you got married. Maybe it was the day that you left school. Maybe all these things are changes as you've gone through life. Uh, you know, you may be like me that you probably didn't realise it at the time, but later you realise things had changed. So in the history of the entire world, the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago, his life on earth, his death and his resurrection was one of those events that changed things forever. For us personally, this event should change us that things for us will never be the same. Um, do we have the... You can put the yeah. verse up. Thanks, Alex. Um, what a journey the disciples had been on. They'd spent three years with Jesus. They'd seen him crucified and buried. But then he rose again and he appeared to them for a period of about 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And he said to the disciples, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we heard from Derek last week that the Holy Spirit came and filled the house where they were staying and how tongues of fire came to rest on each of them and they were all filled with the Spirit. And how they went out and told everyone about the mighty works of God in all different languages. And this is where we pick, it, pick up today. Can you imagine the ruckus? 120 people who yesterday could only speak Galilean, but today are speaking about God in many different languages. I've got to think God's timing is perfect. This just so happened at the time when there were people from all over the world gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was um, a festival of thanks for the harvest and it was also uh, a festival of giving thanks for the law that was given at Mount Sinai. And at Pentecost, at this particular Pentecost, God gives his followers the gift of being able to communicate with all these people in their own language, the wonders of salvation through Jesus Christ. It was such a supernatural event that the crowd were amazed and perplexed. I, I think I would be too. They asked each other, what does this mean? Some thought they were drunk. And so in Acts 2.14 it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven and he raised his voice in a very loud voice, I'd suggest, to be over the top of that ruckus. And he addressed the crowd and he said, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Have we got the same version? Yep. 
Awesome. That was, that was well done. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No. This was what was spoken of the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. God is pouring out his spirit. Jesus has ascended to the Father and now his spirit is being poured out. At this point in history, something's changed. The nature of the time that we live in has changed. Since the time of Jesus, we have been living in the last days. Hebrews uh, 1 verse 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Also in 1 Peter 1.20, it says, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but what was revealed in these last times for your sake. And today we see the prophecy of Joel that the outpouring of the spirit of Pentecost is in the last days. The last days is a term that we're not meant to use to say that the end is like next week or really, really near. The last days began 2,000 years ago and we're still in the last days. However, that's not a reason for complacency. The last days describes the time period between when Jesus came and when he will return again. A time when he will pour out his spirit on all believers. The universe has changed because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Changing because God's word before that had only come to the prophets who had to tell the people the laws and the oracles of God. But now a new era has begun where all believers will receive the Holy Spirit and God will write his law on our hearts. Verse 17 says, In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those last days and they will prophesy. What we see here at Pentecost, the 120 people, not just the 11, were all speaking in other languages of the wonders of God. They're actually prophesying. The main tone of prophecy in the New Testament is, as verse 11 says, being led by the Holy Spirit to be declaring the wonders of God. If you've done this, you've prophesied. Prophecy is applying the gospel to bear into the lives of others. Sons, daughters, old men, young men, male, female, servants, even, all prophesying including dreams and visions, pointing solidly to Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 
that in love we are to desire to prophesy. He wishes all people would prophesy. And to digress just ever so slightly that in 1 Corinthians 11, he says that both men and women can both pray and prophesy in the context of the Christian church. So, what is prophecy? In Revelation 19 verse 10, John was about to worship the angel who was giving the revelation to John. The prophetic revelation of God's word. John was about to worship this angel because it was such an amazing revelation. And he said, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant who testifies about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God. For the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. That's the New Living Translation. Can I repeat that? The essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. There's no longer any such thing as a prophet like in the Old Testament. The 66 books of the Bible are in a sense closed up. They are sealed in that they cannot be added to, they cannot be altered and they cannot be taken away from as the word of God. Any prophecy today must be viewed through the lens of these scriptures. It doesn't hold a divine authority of itself. Peter's quotation of Joel is an interesting one. We've got this stark contrast on the one hand of God pouring out his spirit like life-giving rain at Pentecost. But also he speaks of signs of fire and blood and smoke on the earth coming up to the day of the Lord. The first half being fulfilled right there and then, but the second half is still to come, even now. The pouring out of the Spirit is now, but yet to come are the trials and difficulties we will encounter as the great and glorious day of the Lord approaches. Great and glorious? Is that the way that you think about the judgment of God? You know, some people say they don't like the idea of a God who judges. But if we say that, if we say we don't like the idea of of God judging things, it means because we actually don't want things to be fair. It would mean we don't like justice. It would mean that I could go out and kill someone and it wouldn't matter. It would mean that someone could come and abuse me or my family physically, mentally, sexually, and they would get away free. There'd be no need to replicate a court system here on earth and everyone could do whatever they liked. The judgment of God, however, is the ultimate cosmic square up of all things. It's that time in the whole universe where anyone has ever done anything wrong has to pay. It's a great and glorious day where the perfect execution of judgment on all humanity happens. Perfect justice. That sounds good, right? Our problem is that I know there's some stuff 
here that I've done. In fact, no one can survive that day because we've all sinned and fall horribly short of God's perfect love. No one will survive judgment day, but Peter says only those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I'll come back to that because at this point, Peter's his kind of sermon and accusations are just warming up. In verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, he really points the finger here, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This is interesting. Jesus was handed over by God's definite plan and foreknowledge, but it doesn't absolve their guilt of his murder. They knew he was appointed by God, or at least they should have. There was plenty of evidence, but they went ahead and killed him. Peter's very quick to point this out. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter goes on, tells us how King David prophesied that Jesus' body would never see decay. King David's body, on the other hand, was decaying and dead in a local tomb. But Jesus' body would never be subject to decay because he would be resurrected. He would rise again. Why? Peter's putting together a real sermon here. It's actually the first sermon in the New Testament after Jesus. Why is that important that Jesus was raised from the dead? It's important because Romans 10.9 says... You need to believe in your heart that Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead to be saved. And because in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says that if Christ had not been raised, our faith is useless. Peter rightly focuses on the resurrection for at least four reasons that I can think of. One, it proves that there is victory over death. In the life of a Christian, death is not the final word. The second thing is it proves Jesus' divine identity and his claim to be the Messiah for the cross. Number three, it also proves that God actually accepted the sacrifice as an atonement for our sins. Number four, his resurrection proves that we who believe will also be raised. There are many others. Peter then brings his message to a crescendo by way of the fact of stating that Jesus is not only raised from the dead, but he is Lord. 
Verse 34 says, The Lord said to my Lord. In other words, the Lord God, David saying, The Lord God said to my Lord, Jesus, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus, whom they thought to crucify, the one who was a very inconvenient problem in the life that they lived, they squished, but now is sitting at the right hand of the Father while his enemies are being put under his feet. Now this must be a terrifying thought, that the one that you just crucified is now ruler over everything. Talk about the stone the builders rejected. Peter now sums up his sermon in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You know, in, in the past, I've thought, as I've read through the book of Acts, and I thought maybe Peter was being a bit harsh, blaming the entire crowd. There was, a, there, was, there was a lot, a lot of people there. 3,000 actually were saved that day. And I'm sure there was many more that were there that weren't saved. I'm sure they weren't all standing before the cross of Christ, yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. Surely they weren't all guilty. He's been a bit rough. And, you know, I, was, I sort of think I'm glad I live in 2023. Sucks to be you guys, <laughs> But as I ponder this passage, I realise that I too am guilty of the death of Christ. Not just that, it, probably if I was there in the crowd, I may have been tempted to also yell crucify him. But in the fact that God so loved the world that he freely gave his one and only son to save us from the wrath of God, means that when I hear that Jesus had to die for Rob's sin, I realise that I'm somewhat responsible for Jesus' death because he had to die for me. You know, the only way that I could escape this responsibility is to be perfect, and I'm not. <clears throat> Later on this morning... I'm going to sing a song, uh, and in it, there's a line that says, it was my, my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. I too have to be cut to the heart. What shall we do? Peter's answer to the crowd, and his answer to us too, repent and be baptised. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is not just being sorry. The word repent in the New Testament means literally change your mind. Have a profound change in the way that you think. To turn 180 degrees and have faith in Jesus as Lord and Christ. You know, praying the sinner's prayer 
even if it's out the front of a big Billy Graham crusade, does not save us. Baptism does not save us. Don't get caught up in dead works here. Nothing that we can do adds to our salvation. Not what we do, not what we say, not how we act, not how we dress. But all these things, like baptism, are an outward sign of an inner spiritual truth. Faith in Jesus Christ as Lord is what saves us. To accept him as Lord is to accept his lordship and his rule over our life. And it's kind of funny because, you know, those who don't accept Jesus' rule, they're still under his rule. But they are as enemies under his feet. To accept him as Christ is to trust him as saviour and receive forgiveness. There's no middle ground here. We either are accepting him or rejecting him. In the waters of baptism, we have this symbol. A sprinkle doesn't cut the symbol, but when we're pushed under the water and held there, we drown, we die. We died with Christ. And as we rise up out of the water, we're raised to new life and rebirth in the Holy Spirit. As I was writing this, a thought occurred to me, what right do we have to receive the Spirit of God? The right is because it only comes because of the cleansing blood of Jesus. God puts his spirit in you because he's cleansed you. The Holy Spirit comes with salvation. He is not an optional extra or a second stage of faith in Christ. He does many things in the life of the believer. There's ten sermons there in that one sentence. And he's our guarantee of salvation. He's our deposit. The thing that I want to... Jesus said, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Pray. Ask him every day to live in the power of his Spirit. It's the right thing to desire. So in concluding... I'm going to take the words at the end of verse 40 and apply them to us all this morning with as much urgency that we can muster. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Funny words, you can't save yourself. Only Jesus can. But it means don't be thinking like the world that there is no ultimate justice. There is, and it's coming. Call out to the Lord and be saved. This salvation cannot be earned or bought. It's a free gift to all who repent, who turn from darkness to light and call on the name of the Lord. When we put our faith in Christ, it changes us forever. We'll never be
be the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we contemplate your word, as we contemplate Peter's sermon, the boldness of the way he prayed and spoke, and the wonderful message that he proclaims. Lord, let it be us. Let us trust in you for the power of your Holy Spirit, for the forgiveness of our sins, to lead us in a life fruitful in your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.